Well, we are going to wrap up our series on 1 John today. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, we're only at the end of chapter 2. What happened to chapter 3, 4, 5? Those chapters are important as well, and I want to encourage you to go and read those chapters. But there's kind of an interesting thing that John does in writing this letter. Uh, he uses repetition of the same themes over and over again. And so even as we get to the end of chapter two, we've covered most of the main themes that he deals with. As we've discovered, this is less like a letter or even like a discourse. It's much more like a poetic sermon. And in this poetic sermon, uh, John employs uh, a poetic technique that's sometimes called amplification. And amplification means that you take a few really core ideas, ideas like life and truth and love, and you repeat them. And every time you repeat them, every time you cycle back to them, then you give a slightly new angle or a different nuance to that. And so the whole message ends up being amplified in this repetitive cycle that goes through 1 John. And so you'll see that now. If, if you go home today, and, or you're already at home, and you sit down and you read through it, you'll see how John uses this technique to amplify his message by repeating the same themes over and over, but from a slightly different angle. And that's kind of an exciting way to tap in to the, the heart and the message of 1 John. Well, we've also discovered that John wants this church, the church in Ephesus, which was really a cluster of house churches. He wants these believers to have a confident faith. And that's what strikes me as being such an important message for you and me today as well. He wants them to know that they know Jesus, to know that they know Jesus. That's kind of a definition of assurance of faith, to know that you know Jesus. He wants them to have that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence. And he also wants to protect them from a certain group of teachers, sometimes called the Gnostics, who were seeking to lead them astray, who were seeking to divide the church into those who are super spiritual and those who are just run-of-the-mill ordinary Christians. And so he warns them against these false teachers. No matter what these teachers claim, John points out that they're not walking the talk. He says this, they claim to be in the light, but actually they're walking in darkness. Or they claim to be without sin and even above sin, and yet they were actually deceiving themselves. Or they claim to know God, but they don't follow his commands. And they claim to love God, but they actually hate their brothers and sisters. And they claim to be super spiritual, but the reality is, that they are in love with the world. And so John exposes these false teachers. He reveals that they're actually saying one thing, but doing another. And by doing so, no matter what they claimed, their actions proved that they weren't in fellowship with the church and they weren't in fellowship with God. And that was something that John really wanted to point out. In fact, in the passage that we read, we find the phrase, they have gone out from us because they weren't part of us to begin with. And so that's something that John wants to expose these false teachers. And so the passage that we're going to focus on today in our final passage, looking at 1 John, really has a closer look at these false teachers. Now, John's called them a lot of different things, and none of them are very pleasant or very flattering. Uh, he's called these false teachers deceivers 
or liars. He's even called them murderers. But now he's going to introduce another term for them. And the term is antichrist. Now, I don't know what happens in your mind or in your gut when you hear the term antichrist. Some of us go immediately to the end of the world, to the apocalypse, to some kind of figure that maybe we've identified as antichrist. I've told this story before, but I remember being in Northern Ireland in the late 80s and a certain figure in Northern Ireland yelling out the window at the Pope, Antichrist. And so lots of figures over history have been identified as the Antichrist. I remember one time it was, of course, Hitler or Gorbachev or maybe even Trump. Some people have identified. But I just want us to rein that imagination in a little bit. I want us to walk that back a little bit and stay in the passage in the text because John introduces this word to us but he also gives us a clear definition of what he's talking about when he uses the term antichrist. Literally, he's talking about these false teachers because they are denying that Jesus is the Messiah. They are against Jesus. They are in opposition to the Messiah. They say that Jesus did not come in the flesh and he is not the Messiah of God. Therefore, they are anti-Messiah or anti-Christ. That's literally what he's talking about when he talks about these false teachers. As William Barclay points out, John did not think of Antichrist as one single individual figure, but rather as a power of falsehood speaking in and through the false teachers. And so we find this in Antichrists. Now, John does, however, associate the rise in these antichrists, a rise in those who deny Jesus as Messiah, as being a sign of the last hour. And that comes out in our passage as well. He's saying, and he's warning the people, as you see more and more antichrists rise, as you see more and more people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus was the Messiah, beware that you are in the last hour. Now think about that for a moment. Uh, was John wrong? Uh, how could he say that? Because it's now been 2,000 years. I mean, that's a really long hour. How could John be talking about the last hour to that generation when it's so long ago? Well, in Hebrew thought, this idea and this concept of the last hour or the end of the age, it represents and talks about this period of transition. It's a transition between the present age and the age that is to come. And so in a sense, every generation since the resurrection of Jesus is living in the last hour. That's how we're meant to live. Peter addresses the church and he reminds them that, that some of them were getting a little bit impatient that Jesus hadn't shown up. And he says, this, this delay of God, seeming delay of God is actually for your benefit. It's to give everybody a chance to repent. And in fact, a year, a thousand years, it's all the same to God in that sense. So this idea of being in the last hour, this anticipation, constant anticipation of the return of Christ is actually how we're meant to live. We're always meant to live just on the edge of glory in that sense. And that's what John wants to remind them, that even as they see trouble rising, even as they see these antichrist teachers coming up to remind them that they are always in that state of 
the last hour. So as we find ourselves in this last hour, uh, we also find ourselves faced with an increase in our generation of those who oppose Jesus in so many different ways. And I'm sure you're aware of these and you see them either in the news or on Facebook or in your readings, in your conversations, those that call into question the claims of Jesus and are in this sense, antichrist. So here's the question. And this is the, the teaching part of the passage. How do we spot a false teacher? Because that's what John wanted to write to the church in order to equip them to spot a false teacher and to avoid a false teacher and not fall into the trap that those false teachers were setting. So how do we spot a false teacher? Well, there's two things, and I'm just going to stick to the passage. There might be other wisdom that you can glean and that you can share with others. But two things I see really clear in this passage. First of all, there's this. Know the truth. How do we spot a false teacher? You need to know the authentic thing. You need to know the truth. And John is saying to these churches and this house church, we told you the truth about Jesus. So remain in that truth. You don't need new teachers. You don't need anyone else to teach you. You've already been instructed. You've already been taught the truth. There's no new truth. In fact, John was very clear that he wasn't sharing new ideas about Jesus either. An interesting uh, thing for you to do would be to read John's gospel, chapters 13 to 17. As you read that, you'll realize that all of the truths that Jesus shared there is exactly what John is sharing in this letter to the churches. And so we need to understand that we already know the truth about Jesus. And if we want to spot a false teacher, we need to remain in the truth. There's a very popular quote from one of John MacArthur's uh, books called Reckless Faith. And it's a quote that has made the rounds over and over again. Maybe you've even heard it. He says this, Federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. It's kind of an interesting concept, isn't it? Well, there's a Canadian uh, author and blogger, uh, uh, Tim uh, Challies. Tim Challies, he decided to put that quote to the test. He wondered, is that actually true? And it's an interesting story. Tim called up the Bank of Canada and said, hey, do you mind if I come and study counterfeit money? Uh, they were a little suspicious of him at first, but he explained why he was doing it. So they set up an appointment, and he went to the office, and he was ushered into this special room, and he was assigned an agent to come and to show him how they train their staff and bankers and other people to spot counterfeit, counterfeit detection. And the way they do it is exactly like John MacArthur said, they get the person to become extra familiar with the real thing. And there's kind of a fourfold process to come familiar with the real thing. They touch it because it has a certain feel. They tilt it so they can see through the hologram and see the rainbow. They look through it so they can see the queen's head. And they look at it to see all the fine details. And this fourfold process helps them to know the real thing so they can easily detect a counterfeit. And then what they did for Tim is they gave him a stack of bills and the bills were mixed with real money and counterfeit money. And the amazing thing that he found 
is after studying the real thing, after knowing the truth, he was able easily to sort the money between counterfeit and real. What an interesting uh, example and experiment that he did. Well, that idea of that fourfold detection of knowing the real thing, touch, tilt, look through, look at, it reminds me so much of how John opens this letter. In 1 John chapter 1, listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. In other words, we know the real thing. We know the truth about Jesus. And we have shared that truth with you. So now you know the truth about Jesus. Remain in that truth. And so the simple uh, truth of the matter is that if we want to spot false teachers and false teachings, first and foremost, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the truth about Jesus. Know Jesus more and you'll have an easier time telling what is false. Know the truth and you'll be able to spot the counterfeit. So I think that's one of the first things that we find in this passage. But the second uh, test is this, not only know the truth, but trust the spirit. There's an interesting part of the passage that talks about anointing. And just like the word antichrist that takes us in all kinds of theological directions. So this word anointing sometimes takes members of the church in a variety of different directions. But I want to take it right back to understand the audience of what, who John is talking to. This most likely would have been a Jewish audience, at least Jewish in origin and in roots. And so they would have known the old covenant. And under the old covenant, it's only priests and prophets and kings who receive this special anointing. Literally, they would be anointed with oil and the oil of anointing would set them apart. It would represent that the spirit of God had come upon them for a special time and a special service. But fast forward to the new covenant, to the new Testament. What do we find? We find that every believer in Jesus Christ has been anointed by God <laughs> Every believer in Jesus Christ, we are a kingdom of priests. We have all received the spirit within us. And so we have this anointing. And that's so important for what John is trying to tell the church. Because these false teachers, these Gnostics, they were claiming literally that they had a special anointing. That's the word they would use. A special anointing that separated them from the masses, the, the riffraff of the church and they were extra special with this anointing. And John says, no, you have received the anointing, and so remain in it, remain in it. The false teachers claimed the special anointing, and John says, it's not true, because if we believe in Jesus, if we believe this gospel, then we have the spirit of truth in us. Trust the spirit. So here then are the two tests for truth that we find in the passage. First of all, there's an external test. All teaching must be in, in accordance with the witness of the apostles handed down to us from scripture, right? Know the truth, especially the truth about Jesus. And the second test is an internal test. All teaching must undergo, undergo the test of the Holy Spirit witnessing within our hearts. Trust the spirit, 
know the truth, trust the spirit, and we'll be able to see the counterfeit teaching. And that's John's advice. So what's the conclusion of the whole matter? And I know we're just at the end of chapter two, but as I mentioned, this kind of wraps things up for us. And I encourage you to continue to read. But the conclusion of the matter is summed up nicely in verse 28. John says, and now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. That idea of a confident faith. How do we have that? Well, John says, we can't be confident. We can't be confident unless we live in the light. So don't live divided lives. Walk fully in the light. Don't cover up our wrongdoings. Confess our sins. Don't foster hatred in our heart. Love our brother and sister. Don't fall in love with the world. Set our hearts on things that last. And don't listen to these false teachers remain in the truth. That's how we cultivate a confident faith, walk in the light, confess our sins, love one another, set our hearts on things above and remain in the truth. This is how we prove that we are actually in fellowship with God and one another. And this is how we cultivate a confident faith in troubled times. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that generation by generation, it has been passed on to us, that we can have confidence that this is an accurate witness, an accurate testimony to the truth about your son. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask that we might know him and the power of his resurrection as we walk in the light during these times. Amen.